The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning, Park Church. My name is McKaylee. We're going to be reading from Exodus this morning. Surprise. Um, we're going to be in Exodus 17, 8, and 18 through 20, 18, 28. 17, 8 through 18, 28. Um, if you're using the Pewback Bible, it's page 59. If you don't have a Bible, you can feel free to go over to the info table and grab one to take home with you as a gift. So again, we're in Exodus 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands on one, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the, way, in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. 
and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is the word of the Lord. Hope you're well. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I'm excited to get into this passage uh, with you all. Uh, Before we do, I want to say um, happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, Memorial Day is a time where we're remembering um, here in our country, in this country, we're remembering the men and women that laid down their lives uh, to um, secure for us and maintain for us certain rights and privileges uh, that we have as as Americans, for those that are Americans here. And I I do want to say something. In certain streams of uh, Christianity, uh, there are people who will say that uh, America is a Christian nation. And it's actually not. It's, it's not a Christian nation, and uh, it's a nation where there are very beautiful things and, and also very broken things like many other nations in the world. It's not, though, a nation that's like particularly God's like special place. Um, there were many Christians that laid the foundation of our nation and also un- uh, non-Christians involved in that. There are many Christians and non-Christians that have been involved in the continued leadership of this country, um, but it's not a Christian nation. The kingdom of God isn't a particular geopolitical nation. It's a kingdom that's made up of people that are coming from every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue, every family group, every people group in the world. And so as we gather together, we don't gather together as a church of Americans. We gather together as the people of God. And yet we gather in this country where there are so many beautiful things that are afforded to us and freedoms and rights that we have. Um, There is brokenness as well, but on a day like today, we want to pause and actually honor the good work that many men and women have done throughout history to sacrifice their lives and to sacrifice so much to give us the the privilege and the freedom to gather together and to worship. And so we want to celebrate those things. We want to be grateful for those things because through that faithful service of men and women in military and through the sacrifices that those men and women have made throughout history and the sacrifices of family and friends that have lost loved ones through the armed forces, um, we get to see something of God's beauty and sacrificial love through their work. And so I just want to acknowledge today as you think about this weekend and you make Memorial Day plans, Uh, to be thankful for the men and women who have sacrificed, but also to pray for those that have lost loved ones, family, and friends, to pray for soldiers that are currently serving, many of whom have seen atrocious things, really painful things, that struggle with things like post-traumatic stress disorder because of the difficult things that they've seen. 
And we want to care about those things and honor that faithful service of the men and women who have served, who have sacrificed, and who still do. And so for those that are involved in the military or have been, we want to say thank you. And for those that have lost loved ones, we want to pray for you, that God would show you his nearness and his grace, and that we as a people would be grateful for that good work. And so we're going to pray together uh, for those families and for uh, those in this country that are remembering the lost loved ones that laid down their lives uh, as a part of uh, different military services. So we're going to pray for them, and then we'll get into the word together. Will you join me? Jesus, we need you. Um, today. Uh, we need you desperately, and I pray as your spirit um, is active here that you give us eyes to see your beauty in all sorts of different places as we navigate through this beautiful and broken world. And in particular, I thank you for the beautiful way that we see something of your character through those who have sacrificed their lives uh, to serve others, uh, sacrificed their lives to fight for um, different freedoms and rights and to fight for um, justice in various ways. And God, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on those that are mourning and grieving the loss of loved ones, who are remembering the loss of loved ones, for those that are in the armed forces or have been, uh, who are remembering uh, brothers and sisters um, who lost their lives. God, would you comfort them? And would you help us as a people in this country to see the beautiful things, uh, but also where there's brokenness and where there's pain, to lift our eyes to you, the God who's establishing a kingdom that will never fail, that will never fall, that will reign and endure forever and ever and ever. And so even as we consider what you're doing in this world to establish your kingdom, we pray that you would help us as we look at your word together, as we look at Jesus together, as we look at this beautiful gospel and the ways we see it portrayed in the, in the life of the Israelite people and their wandering through the wilderness. Would you pour out your spirit on us? And would you use us as a people to see your kingdom advance and that your kingdom would be made up of people from every kindred, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and that your name would be glorified across the face of the planet. And so do powerful things in our life today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, I love Denver a lot. I love Denver a lot. Um, I grew up in a little town in Kansas City, and I thought forever, like, this is the best city ever. I just hadn't been anywhere else yet. Uh, but it was like sort of like the way my sort of like uh, self-centered heart was wired was like, this has got to be the best. It's got to be the best because it's where I am and, and it's where all the things I know are. And so clearly it's better than everything else that I've never experienced. And so then we'd move to different places. I went to spend some time in Wisconsin, which wasn't the best, and Virginia, which wasn't the best. And then Chicago. I was like, no, Chicago's the best. Chicago's phenomenal. Giordano's pizza, come on. You know, uh, Chicago was great. And then we made it out to Fort Collins, and Fort Collins was great. And we've been in Denver now a little over five years, and I just love this city. I love this city. I love the different things you can do in the city. I love the, the values of the city. I love the people of the city. I love the proximity to the mountains where you can go hiking and camping and fishing and skiing and snowboarding and you can spend time in rivers and, and you can go on walks. I love the city itself that's just booming and growing. The different pockets of like restaurants and shops and places to get drinks and coffee that are just kind of like tucked into various neighborhoods around the city. I just like love, love this city. And with all the beautiful things that this city affords us, it can be really easy to lose sight of the fact that this is not the promised land. It's not the promised land. It's not life as it ought to be. In fact, what's really clear as we look at the Word of God and as you think about the reality of this world is that we live in the wilderness. That Denver, Colorado, for all of its beauty, is still the wilderness. That your life in Denver 
isn't a life walking through paradise. It's a life journeying through the wilderness. And we've been talking about that for a few months. Uh, We've been talking about this theme of the wilderness, how it kind of stretches throughout Exodus, and in particular the last couple of weeks. And so last week, Miguel defined the wilderness as a place where human resources are not enough to sustain you or get you through. The, The wilderness is a place where human resources are not enough. They're insufficient to sustain your life Or get you through. There are things to be enjoyed. There are beautiful things and good things. But they are insufficient to sustain your life. And to get you through. And so we've been looking at this this theme. In fact, from Exodus chapter 15. Really through the end of Exodus chapter 18. It's kind of focused on the different trials. And the different things that God's doing in the midst of the wilderness. And in fact, the rest of the Pentateuch. Or the five books of Moses. The first five books of the Bible. Are all going to be spent in the wilderness. And the wilderness will become, for the people of God. And for the history of Christianity. A really important theme to get your mind and your heart and your life around. So here here are a couple things that we're, we're learning about the wilderness. When the people of God were delivered out of bondage from Egypt. They're finally loosed from their slavery, their, their chains are broken, and they've experienced the power of God to set them free from captivity. A captivity where they had been separated from the presence of God. They didn't know his presence. They didn't know his nearness. They weren't worshiping him. They're enslaved and burdened and weighed down in this very broken system. And they could not deliver themselves. They couldn't get out. And we've actually all experienced that. We're actually born into that place of bondage. We're actually born into a place of like, well, we, are, we are separated from the presence of God and we are finding life in the systems and the structures and the value systems of the world. And they are insufficient. They are broken. And they're not only not giving us joy, but they are actually active rebellion against the God who gives joy. And we can't forgive ourselves, we can't deliver ourselves, we can't save ourselves. And so we learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we can be set free, we can be forgiven, we can be given grace. And those chains come off, and we come out of bondage, and we don't enter into the promised land. We enter into the wilderness. The wilderness. And the people of Israel did not go from Egypt to Canaan. They didn't go from Egypt to the land flowing with milk and honey. They didn't go from a life of bondage to the life that it was meant to be. They went from the life of bondage into the wilderness. And so the wilderness isn't just a place where human resources are insufficient. It's also a space between bondage and paradise. It's between bondage and paradise. And all of your life in this age is in the wilderness. Now there are There are things in the wilderness that are beautiful. In fact, Miguel mentioned this last week. Joel talked about it a couple weeks ago. Right as they go into the wilderness, there's this experience in a place called Elam. It's in chapter 15 of Exodus. And in Elam, there's like palm trees and springs of water, and it's beautiful. And they spend some days there. And and you almost think like, is this the promised land? And it's not. It's an oasis in the wilderness. And there are oases in the wilderness, right? There are beautiful things to be experienced in the wilderness, I mean, this, this weekend, my kind of goal of every weekend is to create this little oasis in the wilderness. That's like my goal, and I have never succeeded entirely, um, but I keep trying. It's like I want this to be a little paradise in the midst of the wilderness. And so uh, this weekend, though, and this is what my wife and I do every Friday. I have Friday and Saturday off of work because uh, I work on Sundays. Hi. Um, and, so, and so I'm on Fridays, we kind of, we wake up, we take our kids to school, our older two kids, and we have, and we have our youngest. And when you have, 
one kid only, one kid feels like a lot. When you have three kids, one kid feels like no kids. Um, so it's just true. It's true. So when the older two are in school and we, and we have just our youngest, um, we go downtown, we go to a coffee shop downtown, and we just kind of relax. We bring some books. We walk around and just kind of like rest and enjoy and get some donuts and some coffee and just like relax and take it easy. And then we come home and we do some yard work and maybe get some stuff done around the house and kind of get as much done as we can so that when our kids get home on Friday, from Friday night till Saturday night, we can kind of just like be together, enjoy each other, and rest. And that sounds great. And, it, and it's just like never quite as perfect as I want it to be. You know, like because we're humans. And my kids are also humons. And, uh, and, our, and on my heart, starts finding anything that's just not exactly right. I see irritability and frustration and there's bickering and then there's anger and then there's just like, and I'm reminded that this isn't paradise. A weekend isn't paradise. A vacation isn't paradise. A honeymoon's not paradise. Like you're kind of like perfectly designed career path and if you could accomplish all the things you want to accomplish, it's still not paradise because you're in the wilderness. And these beautiful gifts, these really like incredible gifts, these oases, are meant to remind us of life as it ought to be. But the brokenness in those moments and the bigger areas of brokenness remind us that we're not there yet. We're still in the wilderness. And so as we've looked through this story, we've seen a number of things that have kind of warred against the faith of the people in the wilderness, and it's designed by God. And so we looked at this last week. Miguel was talking about this, that these, these moments are designed by God. He's actually designed the season in the wilderness to do something to your faith. So the, the Bible word that's used often is this word testing. But testing isn't like a test like pass, fail, you succeed, you get in, you fail, you get out. The testing is more like the testing of a metal, uh, like a, a, a metal where you'd have like gold and it would be tested by fire. And so the testing will reveal how pure the gold is or isn't, and it will also refine the purity of the gold. And so when you're walking through the wilderness, what you're experiencing is these, these fires, this furnace, this, this purifying experience that's showing us the weakness of our faith, the frailty of our faith, where our faith isn't in God, but it's in something else, where we're tempted to turn away from God. And these trials, these tests, these, these areas of pain are actually designed by God to show us those things, but also to purify our faith and strengthen our faith. The wilderness is a time for testing. It's a time for development. It's a time for your faith to grow. And so that can happen circumstantially with different areas of life where there's just pain and there's brokenness around you. But what we see in this passage this morning, the kind of new aspect of this wilderness wandering, is that the wilderness is not merely a place of situational struggles. The wilderness is a battlefield. In the wilderness, there is a war. And the war is for your soul. It is for your faith. It is for your trust in God, and it is currently active right now. Right now. Every one of you are on the battlefield right now in this moment. In fact, when we were praying before the service started, just thinking about that reality, that that we come together, and as we gather together, there's a war happening for your soul. There are things in this world that are actively opposing you, attempting to pull you away from the reign of God, the goodness of his reign. And in these moments, our prayers that the spirit of God would be strengthening you. And so what we're looking at in this passage is this concept that in the battles of the wilderness, our only hope is to trust in God together. 
Our only hope is to trust in God, to trust in God's power, not our power, God's power, not our skill, God's power together as one people. And so we're going to look at, we're going to look at three different aspects of this passage. One, we're going to look at how the wilderness is a battlefield, and then we're going to look at the way we fight in that battlefield, that we fight for faith through prayer, and that we fight together. So I want to look at this concept of the wilderness being a battlefield. I want to keep your Bible open to Exodus 17. We're looking at verse 8. We're just going to look at this first verse for a second and kind of consider the nature of the battlefield here together. Exodus chapter 17 verse 8 says this. And then Amalek came and he fought with Israel at Rephidim. Um, who's Amalek? Amalek is actually a descendant of Esau, Jacob's brother. So Esau's Jacob's brother, Jacob's name would be changed to Israel. Jacob is sort of like the forefather of the people of Israel, the one chosen by God to bring the restoration, the redemption of God to the world. And Esau was his brother, who was actually separated from God, and he left and he began uh, to have his family grow, and a number of people groups came out from his descendants. One of those people groups were the Amalekites. And the Amalekites had a leader named Amalek this descendant of Esau. And so the Amalekites um, begin to attack the people of Israel while they're in the wilderness. So I want you to imagine the scenario, roughly two million-ish people that have just been delivered from bondage in Egypt, the part, the sea, the Red Sea parts, and they come through the Red Sea. The Red Sea collapses on the Egyptians who are pursuing them. And now they're on this caravan. They're this caravan journeying through the wilderness. And as they're journeying through the wilderness, the Amalekites attack them. Why? Because the Amalekites were opposed to the reign of God. They were opposed to the kingdom of God. They were a nomadic people group wandering through that region. And the coming of the people of God and the journey of the people of God towards the promised land was a direct threat to their kingdom. A direct threat to their ability to build their own lives apart from the reign of God. And so they saw the Israelite people as a threat to their godless kingdom and they attacked And the same thing's true for us in this age. But we don't wrestle against other people groups. But there are active powers against the kingdom of God. There are active powers that do not want to see the kingdom of God advance in your heart, in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of your friends. They don't want to see the gospel move forward. They don't want to see people grow in their faith. There are active powers, and they are not people. They're not people. It's not your neighbor, it's not your coworker, it's not your non-Christian boss, it's not that kind of like government leader, it's not some other country out there. But there is an, there is an opponent, there is an adversary. In fact, uh, Paul will talk about him and this power and these powers against us in Ephesians 6 where he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil that in this age right now are actively opposing you. And we need to pay attention. So if you start living your life ignorant of the fact that your life is on the battlefield, you are especially vulnerable. If you're not putting on the armor of God and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and and your shoes aren't ready with the gospel and you don't have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and you're not paying attention to there's a war for your soul right now in that place of ignorance, and I don't mean that pejoratively, but in that place of ignorance, you are at risk 
That's why Peter will say in 1 Peter 5, be vigilant, like pay attention because you have an adversary, the devil, who is currently prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to devour you. He wants to devour your faith. He wants to turn you away from the reign of God. And that might not feel like this explicit rebellion, like you stick your middle finger up at God and say, I don't want you anymore. I hate you now. What it might feel like is just forgetting about him. It might feel like just spending all of your energy trying to do your best with your life and advance your career and get the family you want and and make your life as comfortable as possible, forgetting about the fact that the world is the Lord's and everything in it. And we're made to find life with him, not in his created things, but in the creator. And so if the enemy can attack you and bring these thorns and thistles that Jesus will talk about to choke out your faith, he will. There's a war for your soul happening right now. And we have to pay attention. It was Sun Tzu and the Art of War who said, the art of war teaches us to rely not on the likelihood of the enemy's not coming, but on our own readiness to receive him. It's not like, well, I, don't, I hope he'll never attack me. Just are you paying attention so that when the attacks come or are coming, your radar's up, your shield is up, your sword is up, and you're paying attention not just to your own life, but also to the life of others around you. What I think is interesting about this attack, you can actually read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 7 and 18. You don't need to flip there. I'll read it for you. But Moses, at the end of the wilderness wandering, they're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. At the end of the wandering, he delivers a sermon to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land. He's, spoiler, he's going to die before he goes into the promised land. So before he dies, he delivers a sermon. That sermon is Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy. It's a lot. You think I preach long? Read Deuteronomy. It's, it's longer. It's longer. I preach longer than Peter's sermon in Acts 2, but less than Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy. Um, so happy medium. Uh, really balanced. So Moses is preaching this sermon, and as he does, what he says to the people is he says this in Deuteronomy 25, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way, listen to this, when you were faint and weary, and he cut off your tail. What does he mean by cut off your tail? Those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Um, The enemy attacks in places of vulnerability. He attacks you where you're vulnerable. And he attacks us as a community in places of vulnerability. Uh, imagine it again, 2,000 people on this caravan out of Egypt through the wilderness, and it's the sick, it's the weary, it's the elderly that are lagging behind. It's the place of vulnerability. And the enemy is not playing fair. He's not about like, hey, I want this to be an honorable fight. You know, like, give me your best. That's not how he works. That's not how the cosmic forces of darkness work. There is an attack that comes in the place of vulnerability. It comes in weakness. It comes in weariness. It comes when we're stuck in the dark. It comes when we're isolated and we're alone. And so I want to ask you, like, where are you vulnerable? And I mean that as a real question. Like, this is a part of, like, I want to prepare you for warfare. Where are you vulnerable? Where is your heart prone to wander? Where are the temptations that are enticing you? What are the values that aren't aligned with the kingdom of God that are kind of like pulling at you? Where are you seeing the way Psalm 1 will talk about this way of sinners and scoffers? 
in this delight in the law of the Lord? And where are you kind of like struggling with like, which way should I go? Where are those places of vulnerability? Or maybe you're just in, generally you're in a place of vulnerability right now. You're weary, you're doubting. It's okay to doubt, it's okay to be weary. All of us have those seasons, but know in that place you are vulnerable. And so we don't want you to be there alone. We don't want you to be ignorant that the enemy has designs, tactics, strategies that are aimed at you in those places of vulnerability. One of the areas of deep vulnerability are areas of shame. We were praying about this this morning before the service as we're praying. Uh, One of the uh, people praying, she had an image of a white sheet and this white sheet that was just like uh, flowing. And anytime something would come on this sheet um, that would like uh, stain the sheet or soil the sheet, the sheet would just become clean again. And it become clean again, like the, the stains are being washed away and wiped away. And that's the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done, that he's actually one who, in our places of shame, in our places of guilt, we can be honest about that, but he washes us clean again and again and again. But the enemy has a tactic in that place of shame. And the place of shame is if anybody knew what you experienced, if anybody knew the dark things that you thought about and that you did and that, that you did last night or the way you thought this morning or what happened a decade ago or maybe something that happened to you that's not even your shame to bear, but you feel it. The enemy's tactics, tactic is to keep you hidden in the shame, to keep you isolated, to keep you alone, to say, if God could never love me now or, or they would never accept me now, if the people in my gospel community, if my husband or my wife knew what I was thinking and what I was struggling with, if my friends or, or my other, uh, those who walk with me through life, if they knew the way I'd experienced, they, they wouldn't accept me. And that is, that is the enemy attacking you in a place of vulnerability. And to pay attention to that and to say, you can't, you can't stay isolated in that place. You have to be able to carry that stuff to the light and experience this risky, vulnerable move of bringing those things to the light and letting people show you the love of God and the grace of God, letting Jesus remind you that nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. There's a war for your soul and it's real and it's active and we're called to fight. So how do we fight? And this passage is really a really powerful image that teaches us that we fight for faith through prayer. The, the battle in this life isn't a battle to kind of like build your life. Right? God gives beautiful gifts and he takes away gifts. But like the goal in the wilderness is not to establish your own little paradise in the wilderness. God's not like on a mission to establish your paradise in the wilderness. The war is for your faith and the perseverance of your faith. And the battle for your faith is fought with prayer. I want you to look at the passage and look at how it says this here. It says, verse 9, So Moses said to Joshua, they're being attacked. Amalek and the Amalekites are attacking the people of Israel. And so look at how Moses responds. This is so powerful. He says to Joshua, which we're going to learn more about as the story goes on, Joshua will become the leader of the people of God as they get out of the wilderness and into the promised land. He said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow... I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So why is Moses not fighting? Number one, he's 80. So is number two, he knows that where the fight is going to be won is through prayer. Where the battle will be won is through prayer. And so he says, so he says, I will go um, to the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. The staff of God is a representation of God's power. And so Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek. So there's a real fight happening. There's a real battlefield. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur 
went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand with the staff of God in it, Israel prevailed. Israel won. When he's lifting up the staff of God, the staff of God's power and strength, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Well, like, well, then keep your hand up, bro. You know, it's like, uh, it's like if it's like this easy, like, why, like, oh, failing, winning, failing. No, why, why is he struggling? Because it's hard to persevere in prayer. Look at what he says. It says, but Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone. This is Aaron and Hur who are with him. They took a stone and they put it under him. And he sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. I think this image is stunning to me. Because there's an epic fight going on on the ground. A real warfare with swords and shields and weapons and tactics. And do you know how many details we have about the fight on the ground? None. All the details are about the fight on the hill. The fight to persevere in faith, to trust that the the victory is the Lord's and is his power alone. That this battle would be won or lost on the hill of prayer. Do you understand that? The battle for your soul the battle for us as a community, the battle for your family, the battle for your children's faith will be won or lost on the hill of prayer. It's a powerful image. It's a really powerful image. Jonathan Edwards said, prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is to life. When we trust in ourselves, in our own strength, we don't pray. We don't fight through prayer. We work harder at being more skilled with the sword and more skilled with the shield. And there's a real fight. There's real stuff to be done. It's not just like sit in your house all day and pray. Like, I'd like to get a job, but that would be trusting in my own strength. And so I'm just going to pray that my house would be full of bread from heaven. And it doesn't work. Like, there's a real fight, but the fight is won primarily through prayer. The fight for your soul, for your family, for your neighbors, for this church will be through prayer. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, we've talked about him before. He was a preacher in the UK in the 1800s. Um, he had a dynamic, successful, powerful ministry. There are times in his ministry that over 10,000 people were showing up uh, to hear him preach. He was a phenomenal preacher, phenomenal writer. Many of you have read maybe morning by morning or evening by evening some of his prayer books or other things. But when he was asked about the success of his ministry, I want you to hear what he said. He says he never took credit for the success of his ministry. Instead, he always pointed to the hundreds of people who, be, who came before services and prayed for God's blessing. He said any success he had, uh, he had come from God in answer to their prayers. Spurgeon was often fond of calling these prayer gatherings, in the, uh, prayer gatherings the church's boiler room. In Spurgeon's time, steam was the power source of the day. Boiler rooms were the powerhouses, the driving forces of everything, from vast machines and factories to household heating systems. Boiler rooms, however, were not pleasant places to visit. They were functional, dirty, and hot, often tucked away in the basement. Likewise, Spurgeon saw that the prayers of his people, these were the spiritual power behind his preaching and ministry. This is why he told his fellow pastors, brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. 
that to see the fruitfulness of the gospel take root in your family, in your neighborhood, in your gospel community, in this church, that fight will be fought, will be won or lost through prayer. As we lay down on our knees and we raise our hands in this posture of supplication and we say, Lord, we need you. We need you to work and power and we need you to, to change hearts and transform hearts and heal marriages and raise the dead and heal sickness and show your love and, and advance your kingdom and see more churches planted. I want to see my neighbors know you. I want to see my friends know you. I want to see my coworkers come to know you and I want to see you move in power, Lord. And then I get tired and I forget about it for like a few weeks. And my arms fall. And then we don't see movements. And then we don't see the power of God. And then we're working and we're striving and we're fighting without God's strength. And, and it's like, raise the arms back up. What would it look like for us to be a people that help each other keep our arms raised? To pray, to fight through prayer. To fight to trust in the power of God. As you think about your family, think about those of us with kids, like, and what skills do you want to give them? What do you want to teach them? How do you want them to grow and their skills and ability to kind of be adept as they make their way through life? Great. Do we want to see their faith flourish? Because the enemy doesn't. And that victory will be won or lost through prayer. It's prayer. What, was it, what would it mean for us to be a people that say, prayer is our boiler room? What does it mean for us to gather and to pray and to beg God to work in power? When you're burdened, to turn to God in prayer. When you're overwhelmed, to turn with God to God in prayer. When you're depressed and anxious, to turn to God in prayer. When you're weary and complacent, to turn to God in prayer. When your friend is weary or complacent or wandering, to turn to God in prayer. When there's brokenness in your home and in your friendships and your relationships, to turn to God in prayer. When you feel stagnant in your walk with Jesus or you feel like your gospel community or your household or, or whatever it is, there's, a, there's something like lulling and struggling. We are in a war and we turn to God in prayer. But we can't make it alone. If we fight the battle for faith through prayer, as important as fighting the battle of faith together. To fight together. It's stunning in this passage all the ways that the people were interdependent on one another. So in this moment, you have Joshua uh, fighting the battle with a number of people armed and fighting actively. But you have Moses praying, but Moses can't pray alone. There are other people supporting Moses. In fact, at the end of chapter 18, you're going to see even the leadership of the people of God is something that Moses could not do alone. In his attempt to do it alone, he was failing and faltering, and the people would suffer. And so you see at the end, the way that he would empower, through the advice of Jethro, he's empowering thousands and thousands of people to take ownership of the mission, to care about it. That Moses isn't just like, going to be leading an obstinate people through the wilderness, that the success and the victory will not happen through merely Moses. It will happen as his faith spreads and other people capture, capture and catch on to his faith and support one another with different gifts and different values. That's, that's one through unity and interdependence. I, I think in this passage, it's the first time that there's a test in the wilderness that you don't see grumbling or complaining. Why? Because they knew who their enemy was. It wasn't one another. It wasn't their neighbor who took something from them. It wasn't that. When there's a clear, active enemy, they aren't fighting against each other. They're united together, fighting against the enemy, fighting for their faith, fighting for their perseverance. But the way they fought wasn't all the same. They didn't all fight the same. They all had different gifts. I think this is a powerful thing for us to think about, that you don't need to be the person next to you. 
You don't need to be like the leader of your gospel community. You don't even need to be like your mentor that taught you the way of Jesus. You don't need to be about, uh, about like any leader in the church. You don't need to be like your parents or like that person over there. You don't need to be like each other, but you have to take ownership and to be surrendered to God to use the life he's given you to be a part of this mission. I had a professor in grad school who talked about the kingdom of God is like a bridge building project. I've shared this in foundations pretty often. It's like a bridge building project. When, when somebody's going to build a bridge, it's going to take people from this side of the bank to the other side, the other bank across this river. You need a lot of different types of people. You need people that are good at like land surveying, that understand fluids and understand the flow of fluids and how that leads to different types of erosion. You need surveyors who can pay attention and fluids engineers who can pay attention to the way the water's moving and the types of soil around here so we can know what type of structure we need to build. They're going to hand that information off to some engineers. Engineers have to be able to understand that information. They don't have to be good at taking surveys or doing surveys, but they have to understand it and appreciate it and take it in. And they design a bridge. And they're thinking about the thickness of the concrete, the depths of the pillars and the pylons they're going to need. They're thinking about how kind of thick the rebar needs to be, how close together it needs to be, what types of structures and support they're going to need. And they have to be good at that. But they don't have to be good at leading a bunch of people. You're going to need different people that can lead a number of different construction workers that are doing a lot of different tasks. You need people that are good at that, but you also need people that just have the physical strength to pull concrete and to lay out rebar and to do that work. You need people that can run cranes. You need people that can go underwater and weld. And do you know the person that goes underwater and weld doesn't need to know how to run the crane? And the person running the crane doesn't have to be strong enough to pull the concrete. And the person pulling the concrete doesn't have to be able to lead a bunch of people. The person leading a bunch of people doesn't have to be the engineer. And the engineer doesn't have to know fluids and erosion but we like appreciate each other and we value each other and we care about each other and we do our part to say we're all about the kingdom of God moving forward. And we're interdependent. We need one another. Not just because we need to actually see each other's gifts cooperate, but because the enemy is after dividing. He's after taking people out that we don't want to see casualties in this fight. This is just heavy for me. I feel heavy as I think about, like, I don't want, I want to cross the finish line with this whole church. And the enemy is after us. And he's after individuals. And he's after groups. And like, what does it mean to say, like, we're not just trying to make our way through alone, but we want to care about all of the church. And that means bearing this burden together. Bonhoeffer will talk about this ministry of bearing. And basically what he says is, you are a burden to other people. Just me too. You know, just like embracing that. We was like, I don't want to burden you. I don't want to burden you. Do you know friendship is about acknowledging I'm a burden to people and my friends are those that are willing to bear that burden. And for me to be friends with somebody, I'm going to bear the burden of who they are. Like, means parts of who we are are challenging and difficult. And Christian friendship is about bearing that burden, about supporting each other, about not saying, I don't want a friendship that's difficult. That's not what Jesus did. In fact, this whole message is really looking at the way that Jesus successfully made his way through the wilderness. Where Jesus, as he goes to the wilderness and as he's attacked by the enemy, he perseveres in faith. Jesus, on the battlefield of the wilderness, trusted in the reign of God. He trusted in the word of God. He trusted in the power of God. And as he comes through the wilderness, he took our burdens on his back. And he carried those burdens up a hill, and he laid down his life, sacrificing his life to give us forgiveness, to give us cleansing, to give us hope, to give us salvation, so that through Jesus we could gather together under his victory, not our own victory, that just as Moses looks back 
at this moment. And what he says at the end of this fight is he says, the Lord is our banner, Jehovah Nisi. It means the Lord is the one who's lifted up to show us his power, his victory. He's the one that we gather around to find victory. So Jesus would be that banner. Jesus would be the banner that would be lifted up. The one who gives us the victory, not through our striving, not through our work, but through his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection. As we go through the wilderness, Jesus is our banner around whom we gather, through whose power we fight, and for whose glory we live as we navigate together through this wilderness. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We need you so bad right now. I just feel aware in this room there are people who are very vulnerable, whose faith is weary and um, there's struggles around them, weary from just an onslaught of trial after trial after trial, difficulty after difficulty. Maybe they're losing heart. God, would you fight? Would you fight for them? Would you pour out your power, God, and fight for them? Protect them from the evil one. Even right now, would you awaken faith where faith is dying? Would you revive hearts where hearts feel weary? Would you restore in powerful ways the faith of your people? Would you strengthen weak knees? And would you help us to be a people that pay attention to each other, that care for each other, that fight for each other? But we cannot do this without your power. We don't have the skill or the wisdom or the strength And so we just confess we need you. Jesus, I want to pray boldly that you would allow us as a people, as a family, to endure, to persevere in our faith in you together all the way through the wilderness as we wait for you to come again, as we wait for you to make all things new, as we wait for you to, to make the world right again. Would you help us to endure the waves that continue to crash as, as we even just sang, that we'd keep our eyes above the waves. And that we would find rest in your love. And so we need you, Jesus. So even now, um, protect the hearts of your people. Strengthen our faith. And help us to respond to you. Help us respond to you with honesty. And help us to respond to one another. Just being honest about where we feel vulnerable, where we feel weak, where we feel caught and stuck. And give us the strength to bear one another's burdens. For the sake of the joy of everyone here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.